0: Here we go. All right. Theoretically, we're live. All right. And so, where are you right now?
1: I'm now in Luxembourg. Okay. Okay. Um, isn't like the whole
0: space agency just in Luxembourg?
1: Yeah. Um, there's a national space agency, yeah. the Luxembourg Space Agency. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, I guess we
1: started. So, so who are you? What do you do? Yeah, my name is Andreas Hein. I'm, um, I'm currently based in Luxembourg. I'm a professor at the University of Luxembourg, s which is a multidisciplinary institute within the University of Luxembourg. And I'm also the executive director of the Initiative for Interstellar Studies, which is a UK-based uh, not-for-profit company working towards interstellar travel. Very cool. And I'm sure this is going to cover
0: a lot of people's uh, topics they're really interested in. So, I guess, how hard is it to go to another star? I mean, we're very familiar with how long it takes to send spacecraft to Mars, how long, you know, New Horizons took 10 years to get out to Pluto, the Voyagers are still flying out there put that in context to attempting to cross the distance between here and say, the nearest star system.
1: Yeah, getting to the nearest star, like the Alpha Centauri system is incredibly different, uh, difficult, just to put it into um, context. um, If we um, take the distance between the Earth and the sun, and say, okay, this distance is uh, one meter. Yeah, so let's, let's compress 150 million kilometers into one meter. Okay? Um, on that scale, um, that the farthest humans ever got in space, like to the moon, uh, that would be like less than one millimeter <laughs> yeah. in size, yeah. So that's, that's the, like the farthest, farthest distance humans have, have ever gone. Now, on that scale going to Mars would be depending on Mars is it's it's maybe like one meters two meters three meters further away from from earth, and uh, if we want to go to Jupiter Saturn it's like I don't know seven meters nine meters Mm -hmm, something mm -hmm. like that yeah so you can easily imagine that. This on on that scale. um, This is like easily imaginable. Now. When we talk about the farthest human-made object, which is traveling in space, the, the Voyager probes, I think to, um, to the la- last estimate, I think they are mm-hmm. like about I think 150 mm-hmm. astronomical units yeah. away, something like that, um, then that would be 150 meters. Still, you can imagine how, m- how much 150 meters are. Easy to imagine. Now, the distance to the Alpha Centauri system on that scale would be about 260 kilometers. (laughs) So so just think about from where you are, where 260 kilometers are. Yeah. So it's incredibly far away. I mean, I mean, this is like on the European scale. That's like the distance between like Munich and Stuttgart or Paris and Strasbourg. So, um, it's, it's a complete different scale. Which we are. And that's the challenge of interstellar travel, crossing these distances in acceptable amounts of time.
0: Right, right. And I guess that's the thing the acceptable. Like the Voyagers are on their way and they will cross that distance. It's just going to take them 50,000 years and they'll be long dead and not even going in the right direction anyway. But if you were patient enough, you could send a, a mission to another star system. You just have to be willing to wait a long time and build a very robust piece of equipment so what is the kind of time frame that your you know the folks at the interstellar institute are targeting
1: that's a that's a great question um i mean in the space domain we sometimes have this joke like uh, getting humans to mars uh, is always like 20 years and into the future. Yeah, I mean, I mean, there are similar jokes for fusion energy. Well, I'm
0: more talking about the about the amount of time you'd like to see the the flight take, as opposed to when you think we'll actually begin the set out on the journey.
1: Yeah. I mean, um, there there are different answers to that question. Um, We are, for instance, collaborating with um, Breakthrough initiatives, mm-hmm. Breakthrough Starshot. And if we take Breakthrough Starshot, which is probably like the the, the most sophisticated project working on uh, interstellar travel today, um, they, they are thinking about getting to um, the Alpha Centauri system in maybe 20 years, 30 years, depending on the latest estimates. So we are talking about a few uh, decades. Mm. That's of course for a very small spacecraft, Gram-scale spacecraft, but if it's just for getting something to another star system, I would say a few decades um, should be feasible in in the midterm future. Right,
0: and so what is the technology that that you feel is is most feasible at this point to be able to carry on one of these missions?
1: Hmm. Yeah, that's a that's a great question because there's Still a lot of debates within the industrial community about which propulsion technology to to, to look into uh, fortunately uh, today we are in a situation where various organizations various groups are working on different types of propulsion systems and that's that's probably a good strategy because um, all of these technologies are at a relatively low level of maturity and then it's always good to have several alternative uh, technology paths because if one path doesn't work out you can you can still Mm -hmm. move to other path path and and see if those technologies work i would say based just based on the maturity of the technologies which exist today i would say that laser propulsion system so what what breaks with starshot is currently working on is probably the most feasible way of uh, getting something to the stars. But uh, it really much depends on the requirements. If you want to get a more uh, a heavier payload to, to, the, to the stars, then it's quite difficult to do with any sail based technology, which means that you would have to move to maybe something like fusion propulsion.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so then let's talk about the we'll talk about the sail based first. And what I mean, we know in broad strokes what this involves. You take a big laser and you shoot a, a tiny spacecraft solar sail, and you accelerate it to relativistic speeds. What are the big, I guess, unknowns? What are the what are the current technological hurdles in going from a cool idea to to perhaps an actual
1: working prototype? That's a that's a great question. Um, Breakthrough Starshot has 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 done a great job to um, to list these uh, areas uh, where progress needs to be made in order to make laser-based interstellar propulsion a reality. Uh, just to give you a few examples, one is, for instance, uh, communications. How do you you get data back? Because even if you go to another star, ultimately what you want to have is getting getting data back Mm -hmm. in order to explore that star system. So communication is a huge issue. The second point is, how do you um, protect a very lightweight spacecraft against um, impact from interstellar matter, interstellar material, dust, um, particles? Another question is, how do you generate enough power on board because interstellar space is very dark. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you have to essentially take your power source, source either with you or you have to somehow maybe beam power to the spacecraft or you, you you might need to use some environmental effect in order to generate power. So it's really challenging to get that power source on a very small spacecraft. You could think about nuclear batteries, for instance, but this is an unsolved, unsolved issue right now. And all these challenges which are um, really associated with the laser and the sail itself, um, how do you coordinate millions or potentially billions of laser uh, diodes in order to to generate one coherent uh, beam? So this is something which hasn't been done yet, uh, not at those power levels and, and those durations um how do you make sure that the sail doesn't uh, melt or evaporate um because of the extremely high power densities we are talking about uh, maybe hundreds of gigawatts per square meters yeah so maybe 100 gigawatts per square meter that's a much higher power density as to my knowledge like in a fusion or nuclear reactor mm-hmm. you know, we're really re- talking about power densities which have haven't been encountered in um, in any propulsion technology yet. So uh, we need to solve that with uh, materials which are highly reflective, which uh, essentially do not exhibit any defects. But but still, at the corners of the sail, for instance, you might naturally get some um, a, a place where heat could creep into mm. the sail and thereby gradually evaporate the sail. So um, I, I would say these are like uh, two, two of the major issues with the laser propulsion system itself, but there are other issues such as how do we keep the sail um, stable in the laser beam uh, because it's accelerating at an at ex- extremely high rate. We are talking about 10,000 Gs. So one G is the um, acceleration we experience on earth when we st- stand on earth. So here we are experiencing like uh, tens of thousands of Gs 10g is already uh, can can be lethal for humans. So here we are talking about uh, the acceleration, which is experienced like by artillery shells. So um, the spacecraft needs to um, withstand these, these levels of acceleration and stay stable in the in the beam. Yeah. Yeah,
0: Yeah, it's, it's a long list, a long list of engineering challenges that need to be figured out. Then you know, you talked about some other ideas, fusion, antimatter. Um, so what do you think? I, I don't know if you saw there was a paper, someone had done a recent debunking of the bussard ramjet that it's essentially infeasible, there's just not enough hydrogen in the interstellar medium to be able to make a bussard ramjet. So if you did want to do say a fusion engine, what do you think is sort of the most feasible way to go that
1: route? Hmm yeah again again a great question because uh fusion propulsion when we talk about fusion propulsion there are different types of fusion propulsion systems i've been a member of the project icarus uh, team which mm-hmm. um revisited the project daedalus design from the 1970s which which was essentially like the first sophisticated design study of an interstellar mission and the idea was to um like Looking back um, uh, 30, 40 years, um, how much has technology advanced in terms of fusion propulsion or interstellar spacecraft technology? And to revisit and reevaluate whether uh, that mission could be done with um, the technologies we uh, we can expect to access in the in the near future. Now. I would say that many of the challenges coming with this type of fusion propulsion, uh, which is essentially pulsed fusion propulsion. So you are having um, pellets of uh, fusion uh, material. Um, in the Daedalus probes, this was like a deuterium uh, tritium. And in, in the new Icarus design, uh, we are more focusing on um, helium-3 and uh, hmm. um, tritium. And these pellets are essentially ejected Um, into the nozzle, and then you have uh, lasers, or with Daedalus, these were like electron guns, and they would essentially compress that pellet to levels where the fusion reaction uh, is ignited, then energy is released, and the exhaust products are then channeled by a magnetic nozzle, Uh, Away from the spacecraft, and that generates the thrust. And that Um, sentence
0: that you just used, I think, had about five things that are probably very difficult engineering challenges to overcome. Yeah, the the having helium pellets hit with high-powered lasers, magnetic bubbles channeling the thrust, et cetera, et cetera. But does the math hold? Like, if you could do all those things, if you could pelletize Helium three. If you could ignite it with lasers, could you hold enough fuel on board a spacecraft to be able to perform your acceleration and I guess deceleration at your
1: target that's, star? That's a great question because the feasibility of the mission really depends on the efficiency of some of these processes. Like, mm-hmm. if you ignite the pellet, what percentage of the pellet is ignited and um, transforms into, into energy via the fusion reaction? Um, what's the efficiency of the nozzle to channel those exhaust products away from the spacecraft? If you take all these efficiencies and if you if you don't get very high efficiencies for, for each of these values, then it might turn out that the spacecraft doesn't get up to the necessary speeds. So it's really, I think, in terms of math, um, uh, we've run through the equations, and uh, everything could work, but really, the the devil is really in the details, if it, um, and and the, and really in these efficiencies. Hmm. Whether you can reach these efficiencies, um, because if you can't, then it will take really hundreds or thousands of years.
0: Right. So it's like it's like if in the sort of perfect world, if the if you can get the efficiencies as high as possible. Each part of it, then you have a chance of it working and giving you a reasonable speed. But so far, we haven't been able to do any of these things, even here on Earth, not to mention out in space, not to mention moving at relativistic speeds f- with a machine that runs for decades, completely automated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so then let's talk about the antimatter.
1: How does that work? Yep. Antimatter. Um... Antimatter is an interesting case because um, I think the main argument why antimatter propulsion is dismissed today is because of its um, extremely high cost. And usually, people then cite the cost of um, operating CERN and how much antimatter is generated inside um, CERN, the particle accelerator. But but I guess this is probably a flawed argumentation because if in the future we are going to generate antimatter in substantial qualities uh, quantities we're certainly not going to use um CERN it's going to be a device which is much more um efficient in in generating antimatter and there have been different concepts out there and I think on a regular basis I'm reading articles um in the press where somebody found a more efficient way to generate antimatter so I, I think the cost argument uh probably doesn't doesn't really hold mm mm-hmm and um but uh, one of the technical challenges of antimatter is how to store it because um obviously antimatter shouldn't be in touch with normal matter because then uh, you, you get a lot of energy out of it so you would you would like to avoid that and typically people propose magnetic bottles so you're essentially sealing uh, antimatter in, in, into magnetic bottles But I'm not aware of more recent research that has really looked into efficient and maybe lightweight magnetic bottles and how we can store antimatter there. So I I would say antimatter is maybe um, an overlooked or underestimated Mm -hmm. um, technology right now, and it it might be uh, interesting to have a closer look.
0: Well, I guess I just wonder, like, I mean, I think, I mean, antimatter is just kind of like a battery in that you're you're putting an enormous amount of energy in you're generating a, a material which will then when it actually interacts with regular matter will deliver you energy at a pure 100% ratio. The obviously, those are the you know, how can you generate your antimatter efficiently, but you can do it here on Earth in a giant factory, as you say, you can, right now, I think it's like $69 trillion a gram or something for for antimatter. So yeah, that's that's expensive. But you can imagine orders of magnitude being knocked off that price. And because you're down here on Earth, you can actually just, you know, build it the containment sounds like a, a solvable challenge. So I guess the question is, then if you did have a block of, or I guess a cloud of antimatter that was in a containment bubble, what kinds of and you could then the rest of it sounds simpler, that you pull out these atoms one at a time, mash them with regular matter and, and use the energy it's for your exhaust. How how, how does that work? Like, I guess, how efficient is that? How well would that system work as a as a means of an interstellar
1: mission? Yeah, again, uh, a great question, because nobody knows right now. And so uh, and probably the feasibility of antimatter, uh, antimatter propulsion also depends on these efficiencies. So broadly speaking, there are like two categories of antimatter propulsion systems. Uh, one is based on um, Pure antimatter reactions. So you, you, you're you bringing matter and antimatter together and you're generating energy and um, uh, some elementary particles such as pions. Yeah, and, and pions are uh, negatively charged, which means that you can essentially thrust them out mm. into one direction with a magnetic nozzle. That would be like really the pure antimatter rocket. Uh, The problem with this type of rocket is that um, the specific impulse, so essentially the efficiency of the propulsion system is extremely high, however, the thrust is extremely low, Uh, and and, and that's a a problem, because you would need a very long time to accelerate the spacecraft. Now, typically, uh, antimatter propulsions of the second category are propulsion systems where you are exploiting the energy which is released from the antimatter reaction, and then you are injecting some form of propellant Right into into that released energy and and then the propellant would be heated up and then uh, exhausted out of a nozzle. Yeah. And this is for instance, like the gas core antimatter rocket. It's essentially based on that kind of principle. so you you are releasing energy with the antimatter reaction matter reaction you're you're injecting propellant and then you' are essentially the heated up propellant propellant is then uh, exhausting sort of this,
0: the same idea as a fission nuclear rocket that yep. you're using the the fission reaction to heat up usually like a hydrogen gas as your propellant and you get a much higher exhaust velocity than you would with a pure chemical rocket. so you're taking advantage of the additional energy to give you a faster exhaust velocity, but it's but it's nowhere near as as efficient as the original you, was it? Pri, what do you call it? prions? I've never hadn't heard that term before. Uh, p- p- pions, pions, pions. Yeah, pions, pions are the things that get in your brain. It. Yeah, pions. Yeah. And so that, that feels kind of analogous to, to an ion engine, that you know, that you're, that you're taking individual atoms, accelerating them in a magnetic field and, and throwing them out the back of the spacecraft, but supercharged with antimatter yeah. style. So is that it is that is that is that our list i mean obviously you know people are going to want to know about warp drives and and m drives and and all of that um what about photonic propulsion
1: oh you mean uh solar sails?
0: no like you shooting a laser and using oh, okay. and using that as you know getting the reaction from as photons are leaving your spacecraft at the speed of light you get a kick in the opposite direction
1: okay yeah that's that's an interesting interesting concept because um Eugen Sänger Eugen one of the uh, pioneers of astronautics um proposed the photon photon uh, rocket i think it was in the 1950s mm-hmm. and um he proposed a pure photon rocket which essentially works like uh having a laser at the back of the spacecraft and then um Having the laser itself as a as a propulsion system, so this would work. Um, however, th- again, the thrust would be very very low compared to the to the energy or power you would need to put into. Um, just to give you an idea, in order to um, to get a few newtons of thrust, so one newton is about the the weight of a bar of chocolate, you know. So, if you have like one gigawatt, which is the power output of Like a small nuclear power plant uh and you would channel that into a laser the laser beam would generate a thrust of about um four four newtons so four chocolate bars uh, right it's incredibly incredibly inefficient and um that's also the reason why for Sanger's rocket to work, you would need uh, extremely high power densities um, in order to to get some reasonable acceleration out of it.
0: Right, right. So I did a video and there's there's a fairly famous paper out there called the weight calculation. And I'm I don't know if you've you've looked into this and and the gist is like if you take the the energy requirements to send a spacecraft to another star system, it's actually enormous compared to anything else that we do. And if you take the rising exponential curve of humanity's energy output, those two lines cross about 700 years from now. So are we just too early, like centuries too early to, to try to uh,
1: accomplish this goal? Okay, so this is a different type of weight calculation I'm familiar with. Sure. Um, I mean, the, the typical weight calculation is like um, we should wait to launch a spacecraft even w- if we could do it now because the propulsion technology advances um, right. so fast that um, if you launch it in 50 years, that probe would essentially take over. And, and right. Be quicker.
0: Yeah, so sorry. So it just like the, the calculation that the, that the researchers had done is what is the optimal time that Mm. that there's a certain sweet spot where, where you can't launch a faster spacecraft. And so you won't overtake the spacecraft. And that number is about 700 years in the future that any attempt to launch a spacecraft before that time, we will figure out a way to launch a faster spacecraft and overtake it Mm.
1: until about that 700 year mark. Yeah, I I think uh, the weight calculation uh, the the argumentations i've seen to my in my opinion they are deeply flawed hmm. um, for for the reason that um first of all there are weight calculations which uh, are based on these this exponential increase in like energy generation uh, advances in propulsion systems etc Um, But the basic assumption behind these calculations is that we are essentially living in a normal time and things will continue like this in the next couple of centuries. I I think we are living in extraordinary times on on the timescale of humanity. If we look at the last 200 years since the Industrial Revolution, if you look at, for instance, GDP growth, energy growth, um, all of these... uh, like parameters, which are typically associated with wealth, um, healthcare, et cetera, you can see exponential effects in almost any area of, um, of our lives. And this is absolutely extraordinary. If you look at human history, for thousands, ten thousands of years, we, we, we never had this type of drastic change, which means that assuming that things will continue like this for the next 100 of years. Um, based on the last 200 years, I think this is like flawed reasoning, in my opinion, because mm. if we look at uh, today's developments, uh, GDP on a global scale tends to decrease. Uh, the more developed nations are, GDP seems to stagnate. Energy consumption uh, seems to increase, but there's also a trend of stagnation in, um, in, uh, in, in the, the wealthy countries in the world. Uh, We also have technology-wise, this is also, I think, um, people have the perception that today we have an exponential increase in technological progress. We're very far away from that. If you look at what happened in the 19th century, um, there's actually a very very good book um, exactly about, about this period of time written by an economist, And you can see that uh, the progress which happened between 8050 and 9050 is orders of magnitude away from what we are experiencing today. I mean, just if you experience what somebody from 8050, if you put that person, um, like just take like um, 9010, I mean, you have airplanes, you have steamships, you have uh, telephones um all of these technologies have profoundly changed the lives and i can see the same progress in the last 50 years 60 years at 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 the same level impacting our lives so the basic idea that progress will continue like this centuries into the future i think this is um i don't think this is very uh this is very robust to to base the, the waiting calculation argument on it, I would rather say, so my, my point of view would be rather to say we are living in, we, we are, it's, it's more likely that we are living in very extraordinary times today. And which means that these times will not continue like this. Mm-hmm. We, we see signs like for that in, in several places. And under this assumption, uh, maybe we have a rather limited window of time in which we can do certain things like interstellar travel. So i rather see, see it under this pers- perspective that we are facing um, rather headwinds ahead of us rather than uh, winds carrying us further. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. So then, uh, so uh, do we miss anything? I mean, you know, wormhole? But I the, mean, like, again, yeah, no, like I'm, I'm not talking about the exotic uh, type stuff, which is the realm of science fiction, and there's no feasible prototypes, we're sort of sticking to unless you want to, like, if there's a lot of, you know, if you want to talk about alcubierre drives, and so on, but but I'm trying to stick to sort of the, the practical engineering ideas that yeah, are out we, there so far, does that have, have we covered them all? Do you think?
1: I was just thinking, um, if we really think about um, propulsion, which gets us to the relevant speeds, which uh, I would say, maybe 5%, 10% speed of light, then then I guess we have covered. Okay, okay.
0: So then I guess um, I want to shift gears first and just talk a bit about project Lyra as a as a cool idea to sort of test out some of these ideas. So what is project Lyra?
1: Yeah. So the main objective of project uh, Lyra is to assess the feasibility of missions to um, interstellar objects such as uh, Moomua. But we also looked into a potential mission to Borisov and other potential future interstellar objects. Um, now, uh, we initiated that project in 2017, shortly after the discovery of UMUAMUA. And um, we, we published or we released the first paper assessing the feasibility of a mission to UMUAMUA just um, two weeks after or th- three weeks after the discovery of the object demonstrating that it would be possible to, um, to fly to Oumuamua with uh, existing or near term technologies.
0: Hmm. So then, so sort of describe what a mission might look like to to do this to reach Oumuamua. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So most mission concepts are based on uh, what uh, we call the solar orbit birth manoeuvre. So um we would launch the spacecraft and the spacecraft would then actually almost like fall into the sun so it would go to a trajectory and and get very close uh, close to the sun and then at the closest point to the sun we are igniting the propulsion system so um, in our case it would be like solid propellant um, propulsion system because it's uh, very reliable and then the spacecraft gets like catapulted out of hmm. the solar system at extremely high speeds now the reason why this is um this is a very efficient maneuver is because if you ignite your propulsion system at this closest point to the sun you get the maximum bang for the buck you know, according to orbital mechanics and that um that maneuver would actually actually allow us to fly at about 70 kilometers per second or even faster in interstellar space. Just to put that in context, Oumuamua is traveling at 26 kilometers per second in interstellar space. So if we wait long enough, that spacecraft could essentially chase and reach Oumuamua. And would you be looking to do a flyby of Umumua or an actual rendezvous? Mm-hmm. So we looked primarily into a flyby. Uh, for the simple reason that in order to get to umamua you have to be very fast. But if you want to rendezvous with Umamua, you have to be at the same speed as umamua which means that you would need to decelerate. Now, decelerating in the interstellar space is quite tricky. Um, you could do it, for instance, with a magnetic sail, so um, decelerating against the interstellar um, environment. However, because max sails have a relatively low maturity today, uh, we said that, okay, it's, it's, it's much easier to do a flyby and just stick to it, because uh, uh, then we could do it with uh, existing or new term technologies.
0: Right. Um, and so I'm sort of envisioning like I'm thinking about, say, the Parker Solar Probe, and how fast it had to fly to be able to get close to the sun, the, the sun is the hardest place to get to in the entire solar system. So I'm assuming you've got to have a really powerful rocket to even get you on that trajectory that takes you close to the sun or maybe a bunch of flybys first of Venus and Mercury and Earth and so on. And then you have that solid rocket booster fire to kick it in. So is it a fairly, is there a a way to do it without that flyby of the sun?
1: That's um, that's a good point because we just um, published a paper on the possibility of, uh, launching a mission to uh, without uh, the uh, solar orbit maneuver, and actually there are several options. Um, there is a maneuver which uh, Adam Hibbert, who is in our team, um, named the double Jupiter flyby maneuver. And wow. with that maneuver, it's actually possible to 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 get to these speeds without um, the solar orbit maneuver. But there are several other flyby uh, maneuvers where we wouldn't do an Oberth maneuver and still would be able to reach. Uh, yeah,
0: there was a there was an an interview I did uh, about six months ago. Maybe someone was proposing that you take an an RTG reactor and you just bolt it onto an ion drive, and so the spacecraft is literally just RTG and ion engine. And they figured they could get delta Vs somewhere in the 200 kilometer per second range, enough to reach Oumuamua, do science and even return samples back to Earth. So, so it feels like with some, and that's a fairly simple machine, you know, I mean, those RTGs are, are very dependable. Um, because Oumuamua moon was so weird. Like, like the first interstellar object that we have detected is unlike anything we have in the solar system and is unlike the other interstellar object that was totally normal. So a lot of people say like, Oh, instead of trying to chase down this rock that's flying away from us, doesn't it make more sense to wait for something else. But do you think it was something special something that's really worth investigating specifically?
1: Yeah. um, Good. Good question um, I, I mean the the simple answer is we don't know because um, maybe yeah yeah, because we, we've seen Borisov um, which the second interstellar object, which is much more similar to um, bodies we uh, we are observing in our solar system, and um really seems to be a kind of oddball yeah. and. Um, I would say, because we don't know and we've never seen that type of object before, um, we we could end up with many such objects traveling around an interstellar space, but uh, it might also be possible that the exact opposite is the case, and these objects are very rare. Now, um, the question is, do we want to take that chance? Yeah, maybe we uh, will observe a similar object like in I don't know, ten years, a hundred years, um, right. or it's 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 maybe something very special. So, um, so so for me, it's it's a kind of question of um, how much is it worth it, and um, do we want to take the chance to to potentially miss a very unique object? Right,
0: right. Um, and but the, but I mean, people talk about being patient. It's a long mission
1: to get there. Mm. Yeah, we are talking about um, mission durations of maybe 16 years uh, or longer. Actually the longer we would wait, of course the longer it would take to reach Umu. but I would say mission durations between 16 years, 20 years wow. plus that's that's like the duration we are we are talking about, yeah.
0: Yeah. All right. Um, so A.V. Scott and Flower is asking in the chat, and this maybe is one of the propulsion systems that we forgot to talk about. What do you think about the potential of metallic hydrogen as a mm. fuel
1: source? Yeah. Okay. So metallic h- hydrogen is a material which, um, or a state of matter, let's say. Uh, it's a state of hydrogen which um, occurs under extreme pressures. Um, for instance, um, in the core of Jupiter, um, it's, it's, I think it's hypothesized that, uh, the core of Jupiter contains metallic hydrogen. Uh, people have every, actually looked into metallic hydrogen for propulsion in the past. And I think the ISPs, so the efficiencies I've heard about, um, if I recall correctly, they are in, on the order of like thousands of seconds. Right. Um, just to put that into context, um, if you use normal hydrogen, uh, oxygen, for your propulsion system you have an Isp of maybe 460 so here we are talking maybe about an increase of like an order of magnitude compared to the best chemical propulsion system we have today however if we compare that to electric propulsion systems i mean they have like lower thrust but we we would easily be able to get into that thrust range so i would say Metallic hydrogen, I think there was some news a few years ago, I think, from Harvard, that they uh, generated metallic hydrogen in the lab. I think we're still far away from uh, using metallic hydrogen as a as a propellant and also to store it uh, right. in a stable way, because I think stability is a big, big issue with metallic hydrogen. And even if we could do it, then uh, the efficiency of the propulsion system would get out of it. Uh, would be at at in a in a range which would might already be covered by by existing. propulsion systems.
0: Right, so it, it would probably be a great replacement for a chemical rocket. But it wouldn't necessarily get us the kinds of velocities that we need to go to relativistic yeah. speeds, it would be it would let us live in the expanse universe, but not necessarily Star Trek or some some version of that. Yeah, again, it's just like, it's like, you pretty much got to be going, you got to have a way, a propulsion system that goes close to the speed of light to get any significant knocking off the time on those on those journeys. So what? So where how has been the response from the space agencies to this idea of, of sending a mission after an interstellar object?
1: Yeah, so um, the space agencies have been actually very fast in terms of contemplating missions to interstellar objects in general. Um, If if you think about the comet interceptor mission by the European Space Agency, uh, which is not a pure um, interstellar object mission, but uh, rather focusing on long period comets. But uh, they have incorporated um, that interstellar object aspect yeah, quite quickly into into that concept, uh, into this mission concept. And to my knowledge that that mission is gonna gonna fly. So yep. um,
0: Yeah, it's gonna go so with you I think it's gonna fly with the aerial spacecraft in 2028.
1: Yeah, yeah. So 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 it's actually only on a, on its way to my, to my knowledge. And so, um, so that's, that's already, I would say a big, uh, big step. Um, then, um, The space agencies, um, in terms of Project LARA, um, the space agencies typically operate on a 10-year scale, which means that um, they typically ask for input from the scientific community uh, at at a certain point of time. For instance, um, last year we had the, uh, or or two years ago in 2020, we had the decadal survey um, from the National academy of sciences in in the u.s uh, and everybody could essentially send a white paper to to that uh, survey Uh, then they would essentially analyze and evaluate these these white papers and that informs the future next 10-year strategy or roadmap of how to do uh, for instance planetary uh, or space exploration Um, now this process is like very formalized um, it's, it's, um, and, and there are good reasons for that, because it's like public money which goes into it. So uh, they want to make sure that uh, it's uh, as objective as possible. Um, but the, um, the downside of the process is, of course, that it's very long. And uh, if you make new discoveries, it tends to be rather um, uh, difficult to bring in very fresh, very new Ideas and concepts into that roadmap. Yeah. Um, nevertheless, um, space agencies like the European Space Agency they still have a kind of mechanism where they can infuse like new discoveries or react to new discoveries by missions which are conducted uh, very quickly and which are essentially all the time open. They are not on in this right. kind of ten-year uh, roadmap. But uh, we, we are what we are trying from the project uh, Lera side is to get. Uh, Traction and the scientific community, because it's ultimately about the scientific community supporting such a mission. And once you get enough support from the community itself, uh, then the space agencies uh, will react.
0: And you know, I talk to whenever I talk to any astronomer, any planetary scientist, and and talk about like what would it be like if you could do a sample return mission from Oumuamua or Borisov? Like, obviously that would be one of their greatest dreams, because now you're getting a sample of another star system, that that the scientific discoveries that we could make would just tell us like, just so much about how the solar system is different from other from other star systems. But they sort of like, Oh, but it's impossible. And, Mm. and I think the the, the drum you guys have been beating is that it's not impossible. It's entirely feasible. The clock is ticking it's getting farther and farther away. And so you got to start, but it's entirely possible with current rockets, current capabilities, there's nothing, there's no new magic that would be required, just the willingness to stick a tiny little spacecraft from top of a massive rocket, and, and launch it. <laughs> right? Yeah, so about
1: the sample return, um, we looked into a sample return in a, in a very recent paper, which was um, published on advances in space uh, space research and it turns out that if you can do sample return if the interstellar object is actually in our solar system and you're launching at the right moment then you can essentially like pass by that interstellar object and maybe grab some some dust which right was ejected right. from that
0: object like so, stardust or something yeah. yeah so so that's
1: that's that's entirely possible um However, if it, when it comes to sample return in terms of um, getting to the surface, landing on it, grabbing something from the surface, and then going away, then it turns out that very quickly uh, you would need uh, propulsion systems such as uh, nuclear thermal uh, right. propulsion, and that's also true for a mission to If you want to do sample return, then you would need a nuclear thermal propulsion system. Well, I'm.
0: I'll, I'll send you a link after after we do this interview to this, uh, the paper on the RTG connected to an ion engine, because mm-hmm. I think it, it, it's two fairly simple technologies that work great together. So that might that might do the trick. Um, so then what about the, the larger idea of an interstellar mission? I've got to assume I mean, I know NASA is considering an interstellar mission, but interstellar in terms of getting out into the heliosphere, right? So that's, Possibly in the works,
1: right? Yeah. So, um, from what I know, um, this mission proposal, uh, the Interstellar Probe mission, is around for a fairly long time. Uh, like in different, I mean, um, they, they they're making they're regularly updating the design, but the ideas there, like uh, I would say maybe like 20 years or something like that. So for, for, fairly, for a fairly long time now. So I, I'm, I'm not sure to, to which extent uh, NASA is going to fund that mission or which stage it is. Um, to, to my knowledge, I might be completely wrong here. To my knowledge, there's no dedicated funding for developing that mission.
0: No, not yet. I think it's coming out of John Hopkins' advanced propulsion lab right now, right advanced physics lab. And it's, you know, they're building the proposal on same thing as part of the decadal surveys, they they're delivering it. And I think the goal is to try to get out to, say, a 1000 astronomical units at the and and try to sample the, the interstellar medium and get a sense of, of what it's like in between the stars but it sounds like, like that would work well as a combination of something that would do an Oumuamua flyby, like first fly by yep. Oumuamua, and then go out to the interstellar space and then
1: taste the, the interstellar space. Exactly. Um. I think one of the um. one of the points where I think that the inter- interstellar probe mission um, seems to seems to be, um, say seems to ha- get difficulties to to get uh, traction is that the mission of ob- the science objectives, they, um, they might not be that disruptive as for other types of so called flagship missions. So missions which typically cost uh, a couple of billions. You know, t- typically, if you want to invest a couple of billions, you're expecting some really uh, disruptive science happening uh, during that mission. And for the interstellar probe mission, um, I think there are objectives such as exploring like the uh, the the helio uh, the boundary between the heliosphere and interstellar space, um, getting more data from interstellar space. But um, I, I'm not sure if the science objectives are like disruptive enough to justify mm, uh, yeah. the cost.
0: And so then, what about the interest in some kind of actual interstellar? mission is is anyone is, is anybody out there accepting proposals for an interstellar like a, to actually reach another star like what your team is focused on is anyone ready to uh to consider those proposals
1: yet okay maybe i i forgot one one thing oh sure the question before because because you were actually asking about reaching Umua. so 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 my point is actually that um if a mission to an interstellar object would be added to the interstellar probe mission, then maybe there would be that disruptive science. Yeah, Um, that's
0: what I thought is that you could sort of put the two together. So maybe that's the that's the trick is, is have a, a hybrid flyby and a and a and an interstellar mission, then that might do the trick. But yeah, so is, is a true and this is the this is why I don't like the name of calling it an interstellar pro because it's just going out into the interstellar medium not trying to get to another star. But is there any interest coming from NASA or ESA or JAXA or the Chinese space anybody on a true mission that would go to another star system? Or is it just too hmm. science fiction so far?
1: Yeah, I, I think the idea is popping up from time to time. Uh, I think uh, NASA, um for a period of time, they, if I understood correctly, there was a senator who pushed um, an interstellar mission for the 100-year anniversary of NASA mm. or some predecessor of NASA. So from time to time, there are like news that NASA would now work on an interstellar mission. I'm always a little bit s- skeptical because um, oftentimes when the question comes, how much budget has been allocated to, to these missions, then it turns out that that either the budget is was not uh, did not pass, I don't know c- Congress, or is not it's not in the budget, right? Or if there's a budget, it's it's really just for um, feasibility studies or developing maybe a component technology. So I would say right now it's rather the, um, the private entities uh, like uh, Breakthrough Starshot, Breakthrough Initiatives, who are, who are pushing interstellar research. Um, I'm not aware of any initiatives coming from the space agencies, um, like really substantial efforts to, to push true interstellar missions.
0: So if people are, I mean, I think a lot of people have gotten are excited about this idea. Obviously, we've been watching too much Star Wars and Star Trek and or maybe not enough, I'm not sure. And we love the idea of of humanity reaching other star systems, first with our robots and later, ideally with with our human astronauts. So if if people want to participate and support the work that you're doing, at
1: the Interstellar Institute, what's the, what's the best way for people to get involved? Yeah, so the. First step to, to getting involved is just getting in touch with us. Um, you, you could, for instance, just uh, write me an email and then uh, introduce yourself, your background, et cetera. And we really have um, a lot of areas where we would need help um, of course, we have all the technical work going on, but uh, we also have an educational committee, for instance, where we do outreach. We give lectures at universities, but also at schools. Uh, we also have uh, people working on um, on Principium, which is uh, our uh, magazine, um, the dedicated interstellar uh, magazine, where we are looking for authors, providing input to that magazine by the way, this magazine is also for free. So you can you can download it. It's like, I don't know, between 60 and 100 pages. Yeah, it's amazing.
0: Um, yeah, I enjoy it every time. Yeah.
1: So, um, so there are many different areas where we uh, uh, where we would welcome any any support. So place your bets. When
0: what year do we see the first picture of an extrasolar planet captured by a spacecraft that we sent?
1: Yeah, so let's let's again take um, Breaks to Starshot, ju- just because uh, this is like the the most um, say, I would say the the most serious attempt to uh, to get us to um, true interstellar travel. Um, I think right now they are planning with a first launch date around maybe two thousand forty something like that. Yeah, so so changes, but let's assume it's like 2040. Then if we assume a flight duration of between 20, 30 years to um, uh, the Alpha Centauri system, then we are talking about uh, getting the first picture back in um, like 2000, between 2060 and 70. Perfect. I'll be like 90 to 100
0: years old. So it'll happen in my lifetime.
1: I you mean, know, of course, it takes like four years to get the picture back. Right, so of course, yeah. That, it, that on top of that, it doesn't make yeah. that much of a difference. So I would say this is like the definitely the second half of the twenty-first century, and I, w- I would say, yeah, it's like 2060, twenty-sixty, twenty-seventy, um, if we're optimistic.
0: That's amazing. Um, yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a great goal. I, I absolutely wish you guys luck, and uh, and let me know when when you're ready to launch. Um, If if people want to find out more about what you're working on, uh, what's the best place to to track your work? Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, so uh, we have a website, uh, ifs.org, which is the go to place for anything related to the initiative for interstellar studies. If you want to get uh, regular updates, um, then we also have a Facebook page, we have a Twitter channel, um, so these are the places where we release um, very recent news. But you should also find like the most recent stuff uh, in the news section of our website. Fantastic.
0: Well, Andreas, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. It's uh, exciting. I, I definitely would love to see a mission. I would love to see those first pictures in my lifetime. So, so, so no pressure. But it's all on on you to figure this out. <laughs> You're going to make an effort. All right. (laughs) Thank you so much and take care. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Bye.